0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So, Father, in these next few moments, as we reflect on some of these kinds of tragedies, might we also be moved by hope, knowing that one day Messiah will come, And when he comes, he will make all that is wrong right. He will take all that is death and give it life. And they shall all know you from the least to the greatest. Might you do that soon. And may Messiah come quickly, we pray. For we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now, as we could dim the lights, um, i 've placed up here just six candles, nothing uh, extraordinary or uh, lavish, but something very simple, uh, I think, to represent particularly, particularly the six million who died uh, under the hands uh, of the Nazis. Six million, of course, was two thirds of the European Jewish population, nine million Jews in Europe at that time. And uh, a, as we know, uh, a very horrendous moment in the lives of the Jewish people, uh, but certainly all the citizens of Europe and the world uh, in different ways. Evil is pervasive, and it is stru- destructive. And as Paul writes, the wages of sin always ends in death, whether collectively or individually. Baruch Ata Adonai lohenu melech hinei lo yanu v'lo yishan shomer yisrael. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Behold, he who is the keeper of Israel, he who neither slumbers slumbers, nor sleeps, is the guardian, the protector, the keeper, the watcher, the one who looks out for his people, Israel. He raises the point of the dilemma, and that's what the security fence was about, the dilemma of Israel, the Jewish people, as a people of peace, and yet living in the center of such a conflict and hatred that it violates the sensibilities of the Jewish people. It sort of violates the sensibilities of the teaching and character of God, where he tells us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And when you're put into this Crucible, this sort of hotbed of terror and of antagonism and of hatred and the desire to uproot the people to whom the Lord has given this land, what you find is the measures to which they have had to go in order to secure uh, the inhabitants of the land of Israel. It's a real dilemma. For many of the Jewish people that live there who desire peace, and you see this over the years since 1948, as Israel has always desired peace with her neighbors, even to the point of accepting boundaries that were to their disadvantage, even to the point of giving back the Gaza Strip from which uh, the Arab peoples continue to lob Rockets into the land of Israel, even giving up the West Bank, what the Jewish people refer to as Judea and Samaria, and have uh, consigned a Palestinian authority to oversee the inhabitants of that region. Despite all of these overtures, by the state of Israel and by the Jewish leadership, the Palestinian authority continues to say we will not recognize the state of Israel. So they, in effect, want to negotiate with a non-entity, but need to negotiate with, well, what is it, <laughs> you know? So they can't refer to the land and the nation as the nation of Israel. And so the cycle of conflict continues uh, to erupt. Of course, it will come to a conclusion, it will come to an end, when Messiah comes in his glory and establishes his people, not only in the land as he has begun to do since 1948, and really before that, for there have always been Jewish people who have lived in the land of Israel, There has never been a time that there has never been any Jews living in Israel, even from the time of the Romans and the dispersion of the Jews in 70 AD. We use that language in in gross generalities when we say the Jewish people were uprooted to be sure they were exiled and large numbers and perhaps the majority of the Jewish people were scattered. But there were always Jewish people living in the land. Of course it was in the late 19th century that the movement on a broader scale and universal scale began began to percolate that would result in the Jewish people as in largest numbers returning to the land. That in itself is a very interesting study. Even before Theodore Herzl, in Russia, there was the movement of the Lovers of Zion. Uh, I guess you wouldn't call them an organization, but a Lovers of Zion group that were already speaking about the need to return to the land. It was because of the pogroms in Russia and the ongoing persecution of the Jewish people there that began to arouse the attention of the Jewish people uh, in Europe and around the world to do something to alleviate the sufferings of the Jews in Russia. And as the pogroms uh, began to erupt and the Russian czars had instituted a policy of one-third of the Jews would be executed, one-third would be conscripted into the Russian army as young as 12 years old till for 25 years of service, and some would be expelled from the land. That was in the late 1800s into the early 20th century, the early 19, even up till 1905, 1906. My own family members, my great-grandfather, had immigrated to Israel from Russia during these times, in 1894. And when he and his three daughters had gone to Israel, they settled in an area that was being financed by the Rothschilds. And he settled in this region or this village town known as Rosh Pina, the cornerstone is what that means. And that was like a orange grove area. They were hoping that they, they would make money and a living by establishing uh, citrus groves. But they didn't take there and they didn't do very well. But my great grandfather had built the synagogue that is still used to this day in Roshpina. He had built the Ark of the Covenant, evidently the Aron Kodesh Ark of the Co- Aron Kodesh, in which the Torah scrolls would be placed because he was a carpenter. And it's a very fascinating Ark because it's from the floor to the ceiling. And it's made out of like this dark walnut wood or cherry. It's just a very dark reddish kind of color. And then he built the bima which sits in, in, is placed in front of it. So this past summer, when I had a chance to visit Israel with my son, we went there and we walked into the synagogue. It's really kind of neat to think, you know, your family members had established this thing, had built it, you know, with their own hands. And here it is, something that goes back uh, to my family. And so the fellows that ran the synagogue, they allowed me to go in and go up on the Bema and take all these photographs and so on. And then out back was the graveyard where my great-grandfather and grandmother are buried. And uh, But what is really intriguing to me about my family who live in Israel is that our family, and I, my, I come from a different segment of the family. My uh, I should say my great-grandfather and his three daughters went to Israel, but they had a son, and their son was conscripted into the Russian army. So they left him in Russia while they took off and went to Israel. I don't think my grandfather ever forgave his family for that, you know. I'm not really sure because he never visited them. They never connected, except I was later to learn, just about 10 years ago now, that an individual in Israel had written to me. And his name is Dwar, Dwar Vakonsky. And Dwar writes me on, in, uh, on an email saying he'd been doing some genealogical background. And he learned that his great-grandfather who they knew by the name Weinberg, had actually changed his name from Deroshinsky. I can't understand why they would do that. But from Deroshinsky to Weinberg, and they never knew his original name was Deroshinsky. Now, my family in the United States knew that he had changed his name, but we had not had any contact with him. So they didn't know. Now he's doing this study and he learns, oh, that's why I can't find any relatives because I'm looking under the wrong name. It's Deroshinsky. Pl- plugs it into, the, into Google and up pops my name. So he writes to me and he tells me his story and where he grew up on the Sea of Galilee and about his great-great-grandfather and of his family connections. And he said, I wondered if it might be similar to your own experience. Well, my father at that time was still alive. He told me a lot about his grandfather, my great-grandfather. And uh, he was telling me that, you know, all these things that Dwar was writing me about was consistent with what he knew about our, our family. So I wrote him back and I said, Dwar, this sounds very much like what I know about my family. And he said, well, you know, in our family, we've had a postcard that has been in our family. We don't know for how long, but it's been a long time. And it goes from family member to family member, and they put this postcard on their wall, and we don't know who this guy is. So we're going to scan, I'll scan it and send it to you. So my father happened to be visiting, and he scans this postcard, and on the one side it was a Russia Hashanah postcard greeting them for the new year. It was taken in 1911, and on the bottom had the address in Brooklyn of the photographer who had taken this photograph. And on the backside, written in Yiddish, was an update on this man's family. And he mentions all of his children and where they're living and they're doing well. And so when he scans it to me, my father is with me, and it starts coming up on the computer. He says, that's my father. He says, I've never seen photos of him that young. It was like from 1910. He had a uh, a bowler hat on and a uh, goatee you know and and he said that's my dad my father starts crying seeing his dad and then when he saw the back side of it in Yiddish which my father could read he starts translating it and it says my dear Rebecca Pearl which was the oldest daughter he was the oldest but the next daughter and he says my dearest Rebecca Pearl things are going fine in New York and he names all the family members so my father's brothers and sisters were all mentioned in the postcard he he wasn't because he wasn't born yet. He wouldn't be born until 1919, 1920. And But the neatest thing about this, thinking about Jewish people coming back to the land of Israel, you know, this is in the 1890s and then going up through the 20th century. The neatest thing about it, he said, as we start interacting, and I'm trying to be cautious about what I do, you know, because when people say, so what do you do? Well, you know... <laughs> since I've been 17. I mean, when I was 17, I came to know the Lord. I was painting houses, but that only lasted for maybe a year, you know. Then after that, I worked in a mailing company where I worked with Phillipsburg's machines and Pitney Bow machines and Cheshire machines. And I loved it, by the way. Not that I was, you know, dexterous with my hands. I didn't really know what I was doing. But I really enjoyed all the machines, you know. Probably the ADD setting things off in me. And I'm saying, wow, you know. But I worked there for a time. And then, when I was 20, Mary Lou and I were married. So this year will be our 40th year of marriage. And since we've been married... And whether uh, while Mary Lou was working, I was going to school, and I was studying the Bible. <laughs> and while I was studying the Bible, I was speaking in all different places, even as a very young believer. Because you know, here I was Jewish, and people wanted to know, "Hey, tell us about the Jewish people. You know, what does the Bible say about them?" And so I'm saying, gee, I don't know." You know, <laughs> and I'm studying, I'm learning, and then I'm going out and I'm sharing. So now he writes, he's, and I'm always worried about, what do I tell people I do, you know? I'm a pastor, and, he's just, and he says, gee, it was nice knowing you, you know? <laughs> or whatever. Fortunately, you know, there was a time in my life for 17 years I served as a teacher. I'm a teacher, you know? Well, what do you teach? You know, I teach Bible, you know? <laughs> but here's the funny thing. I, I just came out and said it, you know, I'm pastoring this church and I'm teaching here and I've been doing this. And he said, you know, when your name came up, I knew you were a believer in Messiah. I knew it. And I said, well, how did you know it? And he said, because I am a believer too. (laughs) And I said, what? You know, I said, how does that happen? I don't know anyone in my family that know the Lord and here all the way in Israel. And he started telling me, you know, and I think about the regathering of the Jewish people. I know I'm going around the block here, but the regathering of the Jewish people, my uh, cousin, distant coven, I don't even know what he is to me, but he's a relative. And so he was raised on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And I said, how is it that you came to know Messiah? He said, I was raised on the Sea of Galilee in a kibbutz. He's a kibbutznik. He still is with his family. And he said, when you're raised in the sea, by the Sea of Galilee, you can't escape Jesus. <laughs> He's like all over the place. And so, you know, if you go up to Tiberias, you know, if you go over to Capernaum, if you, wherever you go, he was there. And so all of us know Jesus was here, you know. And so you're always thinking about him. He's always present. And then what happened for him was, as all Israelis go into the service, he went into the service. He served up in Lebanon in the 80s when uh, Israel had to invade Lebanon. And he told me he saw a lot of carnage. He saw a lot of stuff he really wanted to get out of his mind. So he decided that, and he said if he survived this, when he came back home, he would go to Jerusalem. And study voice at the Rubin Academy, which he did. And he sings really wonderfully. And while he was studying at the Rubin Academy, they had him sing, they were teaching him aureas. And he was singing some of the aureas written by Bach. You know, and as he's singing these songs to the glory of God and, you know, Bach, all of the things he wrote at the bottom in Latin to the glory of God, everything to the glory of God. And so here's this Jewish man who has walked and lived where Jesus Messiah always was, who survived as he prayed God would enable him to. And when he starts singing, he's singing songs of glory to God. And he said, something went off in my heart that said, this, he, the one I'm singing about, is the Savior and Messiah of Israel. Today, he, and what was really interesting, because when I first learned of him, I started putting out feelers to some of my associates, some of my contacts in Israel. Could you check this guy out, you know? Is he really the real deal, you know? And so, as word was circulating, it made its way to a fellow by the name of Shmuel Shmaja, his father, Victor Smadja, had been a worker who came to Israel in the 50s, I think. He was one of the individuals that was with a fellow who discipled me and my wife in the Lord, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, when Arnold was studying at the Hebrew University. And Victor had a congregation of Jewish believers right in Jerusalem on the road or the way of the prophets. And I think it's just called the congregation. And his son now had a tourist agency that when people want to go, they want to hire tourists, believing Jewish people who live in the land. You contact Shmuel, and he sets you up with a tour guide. So when words circulate, who's this guy, Dwar Vakonsky? It made its way to Shmuel. He said, Dwar, he's one of my best tour guides. You know? So now I know, okay, he really is telling me the truth. You know? And it's really true. And he's visited with me. I've visited with him. And what a remarkable connection after a hundred and some odd years, right, 1894 to like 2005, something like that, that I've finally connected uh, with him. And I think when I reflect on the Holocaust, and I have to tell you, you know, uh, I've read a lot about the Holocaust, And when I come to Yom HaShoah, I always have this thing, you know, how much do I want to look at this again? We need to remember it, but we don't have to torture ourselves by the imagery that can be very depressing and hard for all of us. And so I kept thinking, wow, what do I really want to share this morning? And what I really wanted to share was this thing about hope, which is what the video would have showed if we had the right parts. But about hope that the Lord took... Whether it was Jewish people from the time of the pogroms like my great-grandfather, some of whom were able to survive and the people remain intact. We can go earlier, we could look at the Spanish Inquisition, you know, 1492, we always learned Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But that was also the year the Inquisition was instituted and Jews were murdered in the hundreds of thousands and forced to flee from Spain. In the 1200s, Jews were forced to leave after spending hundreds of years in England, were expelled from that island. In Germany, Jews, you know, were in Germany for nearly 2,000 years. They have graveyards in Germany of gravestones that go back to the time of the Crusades, and they know Jews were in Germany even before that. In fact, during the time of the Holocaust, there were Jews that were more German than some of the Germans were, who were relegated or characterized as pure bloods and Aryans. They were there even longer. And of course, Jews were expelled and, you know, were sent into places like in Italy. Not that that's a bad place to go, although I've never visited would like to but the word ghetto originates with the Jewish people being consigned to certain areas where they could not otherwise live it's an Italian word and it has come to denote you know areas of depression and uh, struggle well that comes out of the Jewish history and Jewish roots and Jewish experience And then, of course, as I shared, many of these Jews that left Spain and these other European countries were forced to go east and they resided in Eastern Europe so that by the time of the Holocaust, over three million, three and a half million Jews were in Poland alone. So when the Germans marched into Poland in 1939 and set up their killing squads and then eventually the death camps, it was obvious why they would choose this hub because that's where the majority of the Jewish people were. It was also somewhat, not completely, somewhat out in remote areas, but not so remote that the people did not know what was going on. All you have to do is visit the concentration camps, which I had the opportunity to do back in 2005 or so. And it is, I don't know what the right word is, it's frightening to think that these kinds of facilities were right in the heart or just outside the heart of major towns and cities. All you have to do is visit Dachau. It's a stone's throw from Munich and the main cities in the southern part in Bavaria in Germany. If you visit Malthausen in Austria, it's just a few miles from the capital of Vienna. And it's right on the Danube River. And it's just a walk into the major town in which it was located. In fact, I remember when I was in Maryland, there was a fellow who lived across the street from the congregation that I was serving at. I got to know him pretty well. And we would talk, and I told him, hey, I'm going to go visit uh, Europe. And a friend of mine who spends sabbaticals in, G- in Germany on business matters said, so why don't you come out, spend, you know, like 10, 15 days with me, a couple of weeks. We'll rent a car, and let's travel around Germany and Poland and the Czech Republic and Austria. Let's visit these places that he and I have talked so much about and have investigated. So that's what we did. And when I was telling my, na- my friend across from the congregation, I said, hey, we're going to be going to Europe. We're going to be visiting the camps. And we're going to these different camps. I said, one was Molthausen. He stepped back. He said, Molthausen? I said, yeah. He said, I was part of the liberating force that liberated that camp. I said, really? He said, yeah, I'm of the 64th, 3rd division. You know. Yikes. Yeah. And sure enough, when I got to Malthausen, and this is one of the most, one of the beautiful things in such a horrendous place, was when you get to all these places, there are these plaques as you enter, saying the American soldiers of this company and that had liberated this camp in night you know it was really, I was really proud to be an American. I was very proud to be Jewish there too, but to think that our nation was critical maybe could have been more helpful earlier in what was going on, but nevertheless, these brave men had liberated these camps. And he was one of them. And he had told me that when he had marched up to the camp for like five to ten miles from the camp, there was a stench in the air that all of us were just sickened by. And as they got closer and closer, it just got stronger and stronger. And then when they found what they found, he said many of our soldiers couldn't even stand up. They couldn't even enter in to those barracks it was debilitating for even our own soldiers hardened men who had gone through you know 5 6 years of conflict and when they'd walk into these places they would find such horrific conditions and people in such emaciated state that they were just sickened and became you know wobbly on their feet and he was telling me about this And so he said, look for any plaques or anything that represented. In that particular camp, by the way, what I had learned was that the Americans had parachuted some soldiers behind enemy lines to see what was going on. And they were captured. They were brought to this camp where there are many Russian soldiers and, of course, many Jews. And they were executed in the camp. And their bodies were burned in the ovens of the crematorium. And some of those, what do we call them, prisoners, victims who were placed into the camp had actually by night snuck into the crematoriums, taken out the ashes and had given those soldiers a formal burial in the outskirts of the barracks to honor them and to acknowledge them for the risk that they had taken. The Holocaust is horrific to reflect on, to read on. It's mind-boggling. But the end of the story is not the destruction of the Jewish people, though we ought never to forget what had happened to six million. But the end of the story is God's faithfulness to deliver his people. And keep in mind, 1948 is only three years after the liberation of the last camps in 1945. And even the liberation of the camps in 1945 did not alleviate the suffering of the Jewish people over the next two or three years. For many, they would go back to their homes and find them taken over by others, and they were, found themselves homeless. For many, when they went back to their homes, they were attacked by roving, marauding crowds of people And were executed and killed, even after surviving a concentration camp. In Poland, they tell us, nearly 4,000 Jews were killed after the Holocaust. And many that then found themselves roving through Europe were placed in displaced person camps, which for many were the concentration camps that were turned into dis- displaced, cur- uh, displaced person camps. Just a different name on it. The barbed wire wasn't taken down. The guard towers weren't taken down. And they remained there. It was the Haganah and the Israeli forces that were trying to help Jews get out of there and through such things as uh, that ship, the Exodus, 1947, Many were being smuggled into Israel. Some didn't make it. Some were fired upon by the British themselves, put in camps on Cyprus. But the Jewish people, because of God's grace and protection, continued to come. So that by 1948... Israel becomes a state. Now, I remember David Ben-Gurion reading this, that one time when he was in debate with one of the Arab leaders and asked him, why ought the Jews to be given the land? And his answer was profound but simple. We were here first. (laughs) We were here first, is what he said. And so the end of the story of the Holocaust is the Jewish people becoming a state a state, a nation in the land of Israel. But that's not the end of the story of the Jewish people. That's 1948, 58, 68, 78, 88, 98, 2008. That's 60 some odd years ago. The story of the Jewish people continues to go on. The struggle of the Jewish people continues to be experienced. The suffering of the Jewish people still is happening. What's going on in the Ukraine today? What had gone on among the Arab Jewish communities that have been all but wiped out? What had happened with the Jewish communities in North Africa and in Ethiopia where they were grossly attacked? What's going on in the Jewish community in France today where anti-Semitism is as high as it was, we're being told, during Nazi Germany? These are hard times for many of our people still. But the difference is, there is a nation to which they can go. A nation which opens their arms. A nation which risks its resources to save and defend and to bring the people into the land. So that, as Simon Shammah had said, there's now six million Jewish people in the land of Israel. That's more than the amount of Jewish people in the United States. 5.8 or so, I think, is what the most recent estimations are. So that is like the first time there are more Jews in their ancient homeland than anywhere else in the world. And so why is that? Because as I prayed and mentioned earlier, Romans 11 says the gifts, and this is the important thing, uh, not that the gifts aren't, but this is the important thing for what we're thinking about And the calling of God is irrevocable. The Jewish people were called as God's chosen people. I know some people get a little annoyed by that. (laughs) It's hard for me to be annoyed by it. But there there are some that get annoyed by it, but none of us should be annoyed by it. Because it's a wonderful thing for God to say, I set my love on you. And we should rejoice that God would set his love on anyone. And the fact that we know the word of God says he set his love on this people ought not to make us jealous. Ought not to make us Jewish phobic. Ought not to sort of raise in our minds, well, how come talking too much about the Jews? All you got to do is read the Bible. And you can't avoid them on nearly every page. But we're accused of talking too much. We're just too Jewish it's just nonsense. You can't talk too much about a people that God has set his love upon. You can't talk too much about individuals whom God has rescued from death and has given new life. Do we ever say, you're just talking too much about believers? Too much about, dare I say it, Christians? too much about messianic believers how can you talk too much about what god has done to glorify himself and to better our world we who are jews and believe we should be proud that we're among this great nation of people those of us who are not should be equally proud and excited To be associated with their Messiah. For salvation, as Yeshua said, not I, is of the Jews. And that, he said, to a Samaritan. He told his own disciples, do not go to the Samaritans or the Gentiles, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I wonder what accusations he got at that moment of his ministry. It wouldn't be for a little while later that he would say, go into all the world. But there was a time when he said, do not go into all the world. And that's the Son of God speaking. When we think of the six million, we also ought to think of the millions of survivors and the millions of Jews to this day whose memory ought to be, uh, be invoked within us. And it ought to lead us, especially those of us who know the living God of the universe through Messiah, to rejoice in him and in his wonderful, mysterious ways that defy understanding and scrutiny. Because while the Jewish people, as a people, may be experiencing it, if you know Messiah, you're in the midst of it too. Because why is it that the Lord, whose callings are irrevocable, Be heard by me. Why of all people would Gary Deroshinsky hear the voice of God and say, Lord, save me? Why would Abraham hear the voice of God and say, go to a place I will show you? And yet every one of us here who knows the Lord has heard that voice in some way. Has responded to that voice. And that voice and calling in your life is as irrevocable as it is upon the Jewish people. In fact, Paul's, and I'm closing, closing, on Paul, Paul's whole point in Romans nine, ten, and 11 is, if you want to know that God is trustworthy, if you want to know that God can be counted on, Paul tells us, It is not because of what you feel in your heart. It's not even because of what you've experienced in the past, although both things could be helpful. But he tells us we are confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Yeshua, Romans chapter 8, because of one, one persistent reality. And that is from the time of Abraham to the present. There is not only a people who are known as the Jewish people. But among those Jewish people, there are always a people of faith. There are always some who are of faith, the faithful remnant. How do we know God can be trusted without any questions? It's because he's still saving some Jewish people. And they are sign and symbol of the trustworthiness of God, no matter what we personally experience or what Israel as a nation might experience. God will be faithful to his people and he'll be faithful to those who call on the name of the Lord because his gifts and calling are irrevocable. Is that not uh, a hopeful kind of thing? When I reflect and I say... Wow, I don't have to worry that God is not with me. I don't have to worry that this trial that I'm going through means God has somehow abandoned me. He has not. Because his calling on your life, as well as the people, is irrevocable. And God will always be faithful to his word. He who has begun a good work will complete it until the day Of Messiah. Let's pray. Our God and Father, on this day of Yom HaShoah, perhaps we have not reflected on all the suffering. And there are times when we need to do that. But here this morning, we've come to worship you. And we've come to worship you as we've remembered a terrible tragedy. In the lives of the people, you have separated for yourself. And whatever pain or consternation it may cause us, it causes you and has caused you infinitely greater. And yet, despite all of that, your word is faithful and true. Despite all of that, Messiah has come and he's still saving people despite. Lord, we rejoice in you. We are grateful for your gift of life. We are thankful that we can have a living relationship with you that can bring us through whatever our trials might be. And as I had prayed earlier, We now pray once more, Lord, might you open the hearts and minds of your people. Might they see your glory. Might they experience your grace. And might they find eternal life in the Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B E T H A R I E L.org.